Welcome to The Factor, a global medical device podcast series powered by Agilis by Kymanox. Today, we're back for part two of our conversation with Rita Lin, Director of Human Factors Engineering at Kymanox. In part one, Rita and Shannon discussed the role of empathy in human factors engineering, and Rita shared some of her eye-opening experiences with medical devices in third world countries. Today, they discussed the recent RAPS convergence in Montreal, Rita's presentation on human factors considerations for combination product development, and the global regulatory landscape. Here's Shannon. You've been working with us here uh, at Kymanox for two months. I can't believe that already. Um, but you've actually already had the opportunity to go out and attend and present at the RAPS convergence in Montreal. So I know that was just, I think, a week ago at this point. Um, so I wanted to catch up and hear how that went. Um, how did, what was your presentation on? And uh, then hear how the conference went a little bit. Yeah, of course. Um, the conference was awesome. It was my first time back in that sort of environment since before the pandemic. Um, and, and same with presenting. Um, so I, I, Loved the experience. I thank Agilis and Kymanox for the experience. It was such an honor to be able to go and represent the company. A quick um, question. Was it yeah. was it a little overwhelming? I found my first trip back to a conference to be after COVID. <laughs> a little bit overwhelming. <laughs> it was a lot of people, but I think everyone was in the same boat. You know, it was the first yeah. RAPS convergence since um before the pandemic from my understanding. So the energy was very raw. I found it very easy to meet new people and network. So I, I, yeah, I I also had never been before either. Um, So I was just blown away by the sheer grandiosity of the whole spectacle. (laughs) It's a great conference. Yeah. The main room just, it, it looked like the iPhone, the next iPhone was going to be presented. <laughs> there were lights going off a and a DJ. <laughs> so it was, it was nice to see regulatory affairs professionals, you know, at the top of their career ladder getting like cheered and, you know, they were like rock stars. Everyone was, you know, saying, Oh my gosh, Janet Woodcock, she's here. <laughs> so, um, so that, that was neat to see. Um, for my own presentation, I um, had the chance to present um, on the last slot of the day, of the second day. Um, I had logged onto my app a couple of days before um, just to make sure uh, my slides were there. And I was curious to see who was attending because I want to do, uh, even last minute, make sure the content um, that I had, I was planning on bringing was going to be helpful and, and uh, worthy of their time. Um, so at the time I saw, okay, maybe 23 people had decided to show up, which is a great crowd. Maybe we could even break, have breakout sessions. And then when I showed up to the room to give my uh, initial run through, uh, um, I saw people um, I saw how big the room was and then later um, it filled up. So I was so uh, grateful and um, and glad to see during that talk there were heads nodding. Um, it was about considerations, H human factors considerations for accommodation product development. You know, and and thank you, Quinn from Kymanox, for your help on that. Um, Stephanie as well, and I I focused the talk on um, 
assuming that the audience was coming from either a pharmaceutical background, um, wanting to work with uh, a platform device company um, to, you know, market a combination product or vice versa, someone from the medical device field who just was curious about combination products and, and if their company could get into that space as well, um, considering that over time, combination products have gotten more and more complicated. Um, we're seeing mobile medical apps also in that space and, um, and uh, you know, AI, ML, possibly too, with on-body injections. Um, uh, so yeah, overall, um, I talked about uh, risk management, um, always needing to be a part of design controls, always needing to be a part of uh, device development. Uh, because risk management is, from my understanding, not inherently built into uh, drug development as, as it's understood by medical device manufacturers. Um, so <laughs> I, I find it interesting, having worked in um, medical device and then combination products, there's a lot of similarities in language, but there's some like nuanced differences, like the ICHQ-9 to 14971 risk management standards and even CAPA. Um, Kappa is defined in the um, CFR for medical devices, and it's a process in medical device land, but it's a an object in <laughs> pharma land. And so it's interesting how we have very similar languages, but you know, just some nuanced differences as we as we try to work through and navigate our <laughs> our areas. Yeah, that's a good point. I think um, another thing that could have helped in a presentation like that would, would be to try to understand and bridge those differences. Uh, but for myself coming from medical devices, I guess I had always assumed that design controls at least was like newer to, to pharmaceutical companies. Um, so yeah, I think uh, tying human factors to risk management to um, design controls was my the point of my presentation um, and basically um, walking them through examples of combination products and uh, why a combination product use related risk would be unique compared to the device itself, um, you know, or, or the drug risks them uh, just on, on its own. Um, so like, just talking them through the users, use environments, training differences that we've we've discussed um, in earlier in this conversation. Yeah, I found that uh, interesting. Before working on medical device drug delivery platforms, right? So from the traditional medical device perspective, you can you know analyze the risks of your product and understand what failure modes you might have. You know what are your mechanical failure modes or your process failure modes that can lead to risk. Um, but until you identify what drug is going to be in there, you really can't truly evaluate risk <laughs> because you don't know the potential harms, right? So it's almost like as a, if you're in the, the drug menu or the device manufacturing space, you can only go so far in platform devices um, and combination products until you then have to look at the overall combination product as a whole and then assess the risks associated with that. It's, it's an interesting uh, dynamic in that risk management space. Then mm -hmm. is it accurate for pharmaceutical companies to be on guard as they're 
debating who to partner with in the platform device space. Um, you know, they they do need to make sure that the platform device company has done their due diligence and completed the, you know, design controls and risk management activities and as part of that human factors activities, right? And documented absolutely. all of that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, but that's not enough because then the combination product company needs to do their own <laughs> run through of all of that. <laughs> Yep. It's an interesting space, which I think is why we have whole conferences. <laughs> I'm heading out to um, PDA next, actually today, um, at the University of Prefield Syringes in uh, Sweden. And so uh, as you think about it, it sounds like uh, it's a very specific area of the industry, but there's so much, um, there's so many considerations and things that, that factor into it. Yeah, for sure. Going back to your point about the drug being a big factor, uh, the examples that I gave were related to how the drug, if it were viscous, for example, could affect the way that um, the user is able to like hold uh, if it's going through a syringe or you mm-hmm. know a peripheral syringe, um, if they're able to hold for the requisite amount of time um, or if it's going to be painful, you know, you might think about uh, the last time that you had a shot, like it might detract you from wanting to take that shot like many times a day. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you start thinking about compliance, um, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I gave all the different reasons for manufacturers to consider human factors, you know, not only from safety, but also business yep, um, advantage. Like if we're talking about compliance, you can, build a product that is very safe, but if the patient isn't going to be, be complying, um, that's also part of safety too. You know, that mm-hmm. they're not, they're not going to be getting their full dose. And then also you're not going to be able to make certain sales or marketing claims um, or even touch reimbursement to some extent. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, just bringing it back to the real world in a sense and, and not, and taking a step back from, I like to, sometimes I fall into the FDA hat and taking, so I try to take a step back from, this is what the guidance documents say and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and this is what the FDA wants. <laughs> so trying to make the argument uh, more approachable and, um, and and part of that was also encouraging them to have early interactions with the FDA and, and really breaking down, um, okay, let's say you're at this stage of your clinical trials, what could you do in terms of human factors? Like when should you be considering submitting a protocol, uh, et cetera? So I think um, it was helpful. I got many questions. A lot of them were very specific <laughs> to, it sounded like to their the company themselves. Um, but one, yeah, one interesting question was with regards to our time at the FDA, you know, asking like, what were the most common issues that you saw in submissions? So um, I talked about the user-related risk analysis um, that like we have talked before, um, shout out to Hanabi for pulling the data that um, Mm -hmm. the majority of the deficiencies that FDACDRH was writing was related to the user-related risk analysis. But a couple of folks in the audience had human factors backgrounds actually, um, I had done a quick poll at the beginning of my talk, and 
Um, so people also raised their hands and gave um, their own experiences as well. So someone mentioned success criteria and not having that defined. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and then going back to like, you, uh, someone asked, you know, how, uh, how, how realistic does the use scenario need to be? So just the simulated use and, and, and then make the FDA wanting to see how realistic the simulated use environment or setup is compared to expected real world use. Um, but those are all conversations I was very comfortable to have. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of pieces that come into it with I, one of the diagrams I use a lot in presentations is kind of the pyramid idea of you're building up your understanding of the users and the use environment. And then from there, you're assessing risk. So you're building up this pyramid of information. But if you miss something along the way, then, you know, it doesn't necessarily stand right, right? If I miss a user group altogether, um, then, you know, you don't have all of the information to go up and into your risk assessment and into your validation. Yeah. Yeah. So. And then when it rains, it like trickles in through the hole. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> oh exactly. yeah. That's a good the thing falls down. <laughs> so I know, I know one, ex- one example that always comes to my mind when I think about that was like respirators. Um, and so respirator uh, equipment uh, being developed in different countries and, um, and the user groups for the, for, um, for that are different potentially in different countries. So for example, we have RTs in the U S and that, that role may not be a dedicated role in other countries. It may be the nurses that are managing that or the clinicians and things like that. So making sure for the, the areas that you're launching in that you're understanding those user groups and, and, and not, not leaving any holes <laughs> in your, your understanding. So. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, that'll also help like, in the post-market world too, like we were just discussing earlier, Shannon, um, maybe you, you will be able to launch to some extent, but um, if you haven't been able to do your due diligence, I, I believe that there's going to be some sort of karma, medical device karma at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, not, not in the sense of punishing a manufacturer, but, you know, um, people will, could get confused and, um, and you might end up in a situation where you are getting uh, customer complaints or even worse, people getting hurt, um, maybe product recalls. So, um, yeah, yeah, that's that's also usually part of the argument, too. But um, I also just don't want to even start talking about it. I, I like I want to start helping to move the needle for people to think about HF a lot earlier. Yeah, I agree. You know, like even at the FDA, I think with the 2016 guidance, it was so focused on validation testing. Mm -hmm. Um, And even like the 2022 draft is about what should I submit for? Like, we're already just talking about the um, marketing submission. Yeah. Well, my my hope is have, you know, it it does have material about like earlier preliminary evaluation. But anyway, my my hope is. Maybe I'm, I'm altruistic, but my hope is that the the regulators are identifying that hey, this data is important and critical to understanding safety of use, right? And that as companies start to do that work, they start to quickly see the value of that work and how it not only helps them develop a safer product and it and it makes good business sense because it reduces complaints and issues in the field, um, 
but that it improves their, you know, they're more competitive and they have better products and maybe they even have less iterations on their products, right? So, um, so that they start to see the wins of this type of work and this type of information and then, and then start to incorporate it earlier when it's even more valuable. So that's my hope. <laughs> and I think I've, I've been seeing that evolution over time. Um, I think so. I have as well, but yeah, more from a third party perspective, just yeah. observing the kinds of questions, for example, that we've been asked over the years at different mm -hmm. human factors conferences. It seems like more people are bought in and now, and they're digging into the details of what that would look like. Yeah. I always think if you think about the life cycle of products, right. And the, the, uh, like ecosystem that we live in, right. So we're developing products and they're, they're on the market. So we spend, you know, one to six years in development <laughs> or more. And then that product goes on the market for hopefully, you know, 20, 30 years or, or more. And so the majority of the product's life cycle is on the market, but over that whole time frame. The, the human factors work and the understanding of the users is going to happen. It's just a matter of when, right? <laughs> so you, how much can you do up front so that you understand and can optimize the product up front versus putting it on the market and having your, your patients or your healthcare provider customers doing that human factors research for you in the form of complaints and um, feedback and post-market. So it's going to happen. I mean, that, that human factors work, quote unquote, is going to happen. The real world, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, it's interesting. It is. Yeah. I, I, I was drawn to, um, jumping back real quickly to the RAPS conference, I was yeah. really drawn to um, the talks about real world evidence. Um, mm -hmm. So, I didn't know this, but there's a region in China, in Hainan, like South China, called the Boa region. Um, where the Chinese government has basically allowed international players like manufacturers to come in. Like if their device or drug has been approved for emergency use, then they can mm. import it into this region. And um, these academic institutions, medical institutions will be able to use them and trial them with like Chinese patients. Um, and then through the real world evidence that's gathered there from my understanding these manufacturers can start to go through the approval process to get into china so that's like interesting really interesting really revolutionary um that's i hope that i mean i, I mean it was new to me i hope that i'm explaining it correctly for our um listeners uh but it's only been in the past about 10 years that this program has been in place and um, it also opens up, it, the conference opened up my eyes to um, other activities that have been going out, on outside of, like, FDA, outside of the U.S. too. And, and then even um, uh, even some FDA regulators had said, like, they're, they're open to collaboration. They're open to other ways of, like, thinking about things. You know, um, AIML was a pretty hot topic, too, but we didn't get anywhere with it. It was just more about collaboration and more uh, uh, trying to um, like realizing that no individual silo had the answer for everything. Um, I think that that was the over like the takeaway from that conference. Like there are big 
problems, there's not problems, but big opportunities on the horizon and um, government on its own is not going to be able to figure it out. I think we saw in, at the FDA, especially with like new technologies, oftentimes the review team would rely a lot on the manufacturers. Um, to, yeah. To I mean, technology is advancing so fast and yeah. the regulatory science has to keep mm-hmm. up, right? Mm-hmm. How, how you establish safety and how you monitor and track that. Um, safety and effectiveness has to yeah. has to keep up and evolve just yeah. as fast. So, so yeah. Uh, okay. Awesome. Given given the amount of time, I still wanted to ask you: How okay. did your talk with uh, the University of Michigan go? A couple of days. Oh, that was excellent. So I had a chance to do the webinar a webinar for their University of Michigan Innovation Partners on. Um, human factors for uh, clinical decision support, software as a medical device. We talked a little bit about AIML. And we had a chance to talk briefly on the new um, physiological closed-loop control systems guidance that just came out. And um, so, yeah, it, it went it went su- super well. And we had a chance to kind of unpack that. And what I like about that guidance is that it outlines some of this, it identifies some of the specific concerns, the human factors related concerns with um, AI and ML or clinical decision support, um, that whole field. And, and part of that is automation bias and you know considerations about how people interpret the data, how much trust do they have in that data? Do they know when they should and shouldn't trust it? Um, do they know what's going into the decision um, so that they can make an informed decision on that? And a lot of these considerations, it's, it's bringing those up um, and identifying those. And then it's calling out, you know, hey, this is when you're doing your human factors, you need to make sure you're looking for these specific risks associated with with AIML. Or I, I really think as a my background is in cognitive systems engineering, when I went back after post-market issues caused me confusion <laughs> as to how to deal with what people could do with products. Yeah. Went back to study cognitive systems. And um, in general, in cognitive systems, you're, you're learning a few things. You're learning, one, be- people behave rationally in the moment. So when they're making decisions um, at that moment in time, based on the information they have around them and everything that they're being exposed to at that time, that decision makes sense to them. That's why they're doing it, right? In hindsight, it may not make sense. Um, but at that moment it does. And so what is it about the system that's giving them the information um, and, and supporting them or not supporting them in that situation? And so, you know, I spent in my research in graduate school, it was all about all of these events that happened and and where that breakdown went went wrong, Three Mile Island, right? Um, <laughs> and, and accident after accident, it was a little bit macabre, but... Um, but I, I developed this uh, a little bit of an eye twitch every time I hear, hey, automation is going to make things great and take out human error. I start to get a little <laughs> eye twitch because I'm like, oh, there's there's other things we now need to think about. Um, and so I'm, I like that guidance because it starts to unpack that a little bit um, in a way that, you know, kind of applies across. It's not just speaking to the cognitive systems folks out there, right? It's speaking to medical device developers. So, so we had a chance to unpack that a little bit. So mm-hmm. it was fun. Was it interactive enough that you could unpack together? Like, was um, there- we had some? We weren't interactive through the lecture part, the discussion part, but um, but we had quite a few questions at the end that we were able to talk a little bit. So, so I'm hoping it at least um, uh, piqued people's interest, and I 
you know, wanted to provide a lot of information that they could dig in further if they wanted to. So. Yeah. That, that trust in software is everywhere that we look. <laughs> um, yeah. And when to intervene. I mean, it's yeah. an issue in like uh, the, you know, uh, autopilot, you know, or, you know, automatic drive uh, automation in automobiles, right? Of, you know, if that driver needs to intervene in the moment, can they, you know, are they going to be aware of the situation fast enough, situational awareness um, in order to intervene and things like that. So, you know, it applies to anytime we as humans are interacting with, with some technology that's helping us make decisions. Yeah. That's good that it got technical. It sounds like the audience was very engaged. Yeah. It's a fun, it was a good, great group, you know, the work that they're doing um, from, you know, their, their research across the spectrum from, uh, you know, their students and um, researchers within the University of Michigan systems, healthcare pr practitioners and so forth that are, you know, building up different innovations. So it's a neat. neat I think sometimes what we're doing is not only, I mean, yes, for the business case, getting Agile's name out there, Kaiminox's name out there, but it's it's almost a continuation of the work that we were doing in the FDA also. So bringing these human factors principles and getting everyone excited about why it should matter, um, that <laughs> that I think is, is always going to be something I'm interested in. Yeah, um, well, I think, yeah, and I think as, as part of, as part of Kaiminox, so Agilus historically was focused on human factors and instructional materials, but now as part of Kaiminox, um, we're, we're part of a, a system that can support companies from, you know, beginning to end in product development. And it's, it's exciting to, um, to be able to work in that space because we can, we have so many, so much more resources and expertise that we can pull from and tap into. And, and so when we're engaged with a client, we can help them identify needs and then, you know, identify how to go about solving them, whether they're an HF need or, or, uh, you know, process validation need. <laughs> right. I've had, I've had that before with clients where, you know, they had a human factors concern and we were able to identify ways within their process to take that out of the hands of users and do it within the product. Um, but then I was like, okay, now you have a process validation issue, not a human factors issue. <laughs> so it's exciting to be able to work with them uh, across the, the range of needs um, and, uh, and be able to support that. So, okay, so we're, we're running out of time, but I wanted to thank you for a couple things. One, I'm, I'm super excited that you're um, with us here at Kymanox now. Um, and so I uh, wanted to thank you for joining us and jumping right in and getting involved in projects and working with the staff and, and um, the people that are reporting to you and, and building that up um, and speaking at conferences. So thank you for that. And then I also wanted to thank you for everything that you bring to our industry. And as you go out and you do these presentations and the work that you've done over the years, you bring um, your, again, your expertise and um, your experiences from, you know, you know, from understanding global cultures and, and, you know, the, all the information and uh, you have accumulated as a whole person um, and bringing that to bear for improving medical devices and, and healthcare. So, so thank you for that. 
Thank you for working with us and thank you for um, helping us all to be better. Gosh, thank you. <laughs> Thanks for always taking a chance on me and believing in me. So yeah, always great to work with you. Well, I guess we'll wrap it up and uh, thank you everybody for listening. Thank you everyone. That was Rita Lynn and Shannon Hosty. Thank you so much for listening to or watching this episode. Be sure to subscribe or follow this podcast and whatever app you're using right now, or follow Agilist by Kymanox on LinkedIn for all updates. For more information on what Kymanox offers, visit kymanox.com. That's K-Y-M-A-N-O-X.com. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon on The Factor. <laughs>